Welcome back to SideQuest, episode 35, um, uh, Final Fantasy VII. Let me actually check it here because last time we were talking, we weren't talking about Final Fantasy VII. It looks like this will be our our 21st episode going through Final Fantasy VII. And, you know, back with me is my esteemed co- colleague, Mr. Wesley Shantz, and I should welcome him back. Welcome back, Mr. Wesley Shantz. Pleasure as always. It's just amazing, Wes. Something about going back through this game as an adult, besides not having, you know, besides dealing with nostalgia and not having the same moments of pure sort of joy and horror and sort of uh, like uh, moments of feeling pure being like I did when I was a young person, like when I first saw Ares die or when I saw the strength of Sephiroth. These are no longer fresh and new experiences, so I don't have them, but what in, in the same way that I once did, or they don't manifest in such a bold and rich, like life-changing way as they did. Because, you know, that was the first time I'd ever seen somebody who I cared about really in sort of a physical form like that get killed. Like, even though obviously Ares is not, you know, a family member or a real person, she's also more than just a, a character in a book or in a movie because I, I got to actually play as her. And I, I even had a moment the other day, yesterday when I was playing that was very sad where I, I was selling weapons to get money to buy new materia, and I came to a moment where I had to consider selling her weapons. And that, uh, did, you, did you do it? Yeah. Did you oh my, so, so <laughs> uh, it, you know, this, this will be very me, but, but also say I sold two, but I kept one. <laughs> so I didn't sell them all. I couldn't bring myself to sell them all. I couldn't bring myself to sell the one that she had when she died, but I could sell the rest of them. But the, I mean, besides that most, you know, that real emotion and that I, I, I continue to feel even now as an adult playing this game, understanding that it's a game and uh, not, you know, obviously she's not a character with sentient life, like somebody who might actually leave my life. But um, <clears throat> the second point that I, I wanted to make is that it's just, even though we've done 21 of these episodes, it's incredible. It seems like we've almost spent no time at all, even though we have spent several months and it just the length and the breadth of the project feels so much less than when I was young. It felt like such a magnificent, long-reaching achievement. And perhaps it was for me as a young person to get to the second disc, you know, something that takes a semester, potentially a month or two to do. But now it's, it's funny just given the context of what we do in the adult space time. You know, we do things over a year or two year spans. You're now married. So that's a lifetime span commitment. Um, But that it, it, it's almost like, oh, wow, we're on the second disc now. That didn't take much time at all. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the difference between, as you say, going back to something that is more or less familiar and uh, breaking new ground in something that is, you have to sort of assimilate so much more information that uh, it feels like a bigger, a bigger deal um, versus, you know, going back and retreading and sort of taking things out and looking at them again, maybe in new ways. But but you sort of know what they are more or less already. Well, and so um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. So we, we have both been using, I believe, the Jagged Walkthrough Guide, and we've both sort of admitted that this game can be rather difficult and not straightforward, especially when it comes to what to do next. And if you're on sort of a tight schedule like we as adults with jobs and you know, social commitments are, you know, we got to kind of figure out what's next pretty fast and then get to play. But in this part of the game, Jagged takes a moment to tell us that 
almost every place that we have been to before, we could now return to to some benefit to uh, to get some item that is now present there that wasn't before. Like we can go back to to Clouds, former home Nibelheim, and play the piano and get um, Tifa's. Uh, I think Limit Break, one of her ultimate limit break, something like that. We can go to Wu Tai, which we could have done already, but they mentioned this again, and play through the pagoda and get, I think that's also a limit break for Yuffie. And we can go back to all of these various places and now uh, receive items that we didn't get before. And I wonder to what extent that's like a microcosm of what one does when one looks into one's memory looking for information and whether that is sort of what we are doing too by playing back through this game now for uh, you know at least the second time and trying to sort of dive into our own childhoods and this narrative that was a part of our childhood and sort of separate the two and then figure out how this helped to mold us and what was good within it. And um, yes. <laughs> I, I agree. I mean, it's interesting because in a way, in the context of the story of the game, each time you go to a new place, it's actually an old place to one of your characters at least, um, in most cases. And uh, and then now now that you have the high wind, like you say, you can quickly go back again and sort of re reconnect or re-explore, pick up anything you missed, also find some new stuff that wasn't accessible before. Um, so the game in that way, you know, rewards you doing what the characters were doing in the course of the story, right? And so, you know, each of them recovers some sort of memory or something comes out into the open the first time you go through. And now the second time, it's like a little bit more abstract. You're getting uh, like an item here and there, maybe a new materia, something like that. Uh, and so you're free to sort of go at whatever order you want as well. It's, it's not quite the same um, story building as it is like building up your party, building up your uh, sort of strategy maybe if you wanna start doing some of the, as you say, like the final limit breaks and things, start to like decide which characters maybe you're gonna use um, for the for this part of the game when you, for the first time, are maybe using some different ones that you haven't had in your party before. Uh, the, the material that you can find, like you said, there's, there's that one elemental materia when you play the piano with Tifa. There's also a, uh, there's a full cure. And it's interesting because it, uh, it doesn't actually have any spells that you can cast right away. You have to actually level it up first. And, uh, and I don't know if I ever found that before because I, I didn't play this with a walkthrough the first time. But uh, it's like tucked away back in Cosmo Canyon somewhere. If you get that and you level it up, uh, it's kind of ridiculous like how powerful some of this materia is becoming uh and that's that is sort of the next thing in the story is to start finding the huge materia right that's like the next step yeah i wanted yeah i that's a very good god i wanted to ask you about not only what this sort of whether you thought the developmental process of pursuing materia and materia with 330 times growth and also seeing your characters now start to develop some pretty wicked powers with materia. I, I wondered whether you thought that that might be a metaphor for the development of consciousness or personality in the second half of a human life. So in the first half, obviously, it's your physical, your physical body, which physically develops. 
and, and your brain continues to develop and you develop your skills and you sort of enter into the world. But then what happens in the second half of life? Like you obviously degenerate physically, but can you continue to grow and progress? And the answer is yes. You know, it's mostly your great philosophers and great artists. I mean, many people do good work when they're young, but you find, you know, often people do their best work when they are older, when they are even more refined in their craft. And whether this is sort of showing the invisible growth of the mind and the sort of invisible and tangible skills that a human develops. And on a second, the second question I wanted to ask was about the, t the uh, team getting flipped up and you having to use new skills and new people and uh, new combinations of materia and uh, how that's affecting you and what you think it means that the game is now forcing you into the situation. Not only did you now not have Cloud and had to use Tifa, who you might not have been using, but now Sid is leader and he was nominated as leader. And Barrett, who seemed like the natural one, sort of abdicated as leader. And, you know, there's a, since I'm playing this on PS3, there's a really, every time I, I turn the game on and load it, because I downloaded it through um, PS Online, and, but, um, Every time I have to load it, I have to change discs by clicking on two buttons on my controller. But there's always a, an animation of a character in CGI before that. Like one is Sid looking at the high wind. Um, and one is, of course, Ares looking at the high wind, which we talked about some yesterday, uh, not, on, not online, not onto the air. But um, one is Barrett at Ares's... Um, uh, garden in Midgar, her her castle, or not her castle, but her church garden. And I always thought, and he's like sort of scratching his head. And I thought that was really interesting to connect with him deciding not to be a leader that it's almost like he's seen that there's, he's like this sort of like, you know, tough guy thug, but he, you know, he has a daughter who he's adopted of his own merit. He's mature enough to think he's no longer a leader, which, you know, you would think is the sort of attitude that would make someone a leader. That's platonic, right? It's the man who doesn't want to lead, who should lead. And so perhaps he really does have that. But also just, it's a very tender image of him, sort of looking like he's dealing with his emotions for somebody who is so sweet, who you would have never imagined that he would have ever hung out with either. And such an interesting, like we talked about so long ago, diverse group of people brought together by one cause and just sort of scratching his head at that. And so I guess I wanted to ask about using these new characters and whatever it is that I asked about first, hopefully you didn't forget because I'm, I'm beginning to. <laughs> I think it was, it was kind of about like stages in, in your life. Yes, you know, yes, you're right, with the material growth. Right, very good. You're better than I am, better man than I am, Wes. <laughs> I just, uh... I think I've had a bit, a fair bit of practice at this point. <laughs> uh, no kidding. The, uh, the, the point you're at in the game here is like, yeah, so some of the material that you might've been using a lot is probably either mastered or nearly mastered, depending on like whether you've used a lot of the, the double growth, uh, equipment, you know? And so you might be starting to use some new materia as well as new characters, you know, leveling them up, getting their limit breaks that you haven't maybe had to, uh, take that much damage with them and thus they haven't really developed as many limits um, and the, I think one other aspect of the the maturity thing is the, the uh, sort of having the full game board at your disposal like like we do with the high wind and so to me it kind of makes sense that Sid would be the leader and that's the reason Barrett gives along with saying that he personally 
doesn't feel that he's qualified uh, after having sort of gotten to know Cloud and, and all experience all that they have. Um, but also so that, you know, their key to, uh, to progressing at this point is the high wind and Sid is the, the guy on, on top of that particular hierarchy, right? And so he's, he's like the natural choice at this point. Um, so, you know, for, for a mature person or someone who's no longer young, um, it seems to be that instead of um, finding lots of new things and sort of testing yourself against those, you sort of go around to a certain amount of things that you already do know about and, and move among them with like a set of, of strategies or a sort of um, a, a larger goal in mind, um, which might include, you know, leadership, which, which might not be something uh, that really applies to a young person. Um, it might be a kind of consolidation, you know, of, of things that you've found or that you know are there that you just need to sort of put in some more effort to, to recover. Um, it might be, again, to sort of like find someone who's lost, which is the, the part of the story that we're in. We do, one of the things we do, at least before we go after the huge materia, is to find Cloud, right? Who's, who's washed up on the shore of this um, like southeasternmost little, little island uh, of Medil. And, uh, and, and not only is Cloud there, but when you go there, uh, Tifa decides to stay and try to um, like be there for him and, and nurse him uh, in his uh, in his in his damaged state. You know, she still thinks that he can maybe recover, and she wants to be there when he does. Um, so there's that that element of you know caretaking, which I think also goes along with your point about you know no longer being young. And and I think that's so fascinating because well for two reasons it's almost as if you have the characters first revealed as what they want to be to you in the beginning of this game. Sort of like how Cloud first shows up flipping into that train, uh, being a show-off, Barrett calls him. But now we're really getting to know him. And we're really starting to see the character of the individuals that we're playing along with. It's like it is the midpoint of the game, as indicated by the name Mid-Eel, just like mid Gar that we start in, Middle Earth. It's as if the game is nodding to us that this is the midpoint. This is the part of the transition or the now we're, you know, cascading down to the denouement of the game and that Cloud has totally lost himself, but Tifa is finding herself because she establishes her value hierarchy and sticks by it and everybody respects that. I find that so meaningful that she says, I don't care about the world or anything else. I care about Cloud more than anything. I'm staying with them. And all the guys who are there, at least in my party, I had Sid, I think Barrett, and maybe Red 13, and they all kind of scratch their heads like, yeah, 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 no, that's the best thing to do. That's fine. Yeah. And uh, then, you know, Tifa's just there. And it's interesting because you hadn't really seen to what extent she loved or really cared for Cloud before then. There seemed to be something there, but also some questions, which Barrett then explicitly asks, is this the boy from your childhood or is this a shadow of Sephiroth? Sorry, I had to ask. And it seems like Tifa, though, with some hesitation, uh, says, no, no, he is the kid from my youth. So I guess, what do you think of that, Wes? Is she covering still? Is he both? Is he one? Is he the other? What's happening there? 
Yeah, I, I found that a really telling line this time. I also picked up on that, um, although having the exact words is really helpful. And I took that to mean that she has decided that she is going to embrace Cloud as the person that he believed he was and that she had always um, gone along with his belief, you know, that she seems to have kind of given enough of herself at this point that for all intents and purposes, he is that person um, for her. And that's fascinating, you know, for himself as well. Uh, and, and I think part of that decision is probably seeing him in this condition of, you know, um, illness and brokenness, right. And that she sort of realizes what, what she's lost and what he must have lost in that moment of sort of dysphoria, not knowing whether he was or was not real, you know, all of that. Uh, it, it's a really, really powerful moment in the game. Well, that makes me think two very powerful things. One is that what blows his mind apart is exposure to information raw in the live stream, which is an in-game metaphor for, you know, him having his psyche torn apart by realizing what he really is and what he's not. Two, that makes me think about how, and we talk so much about the Jungian archetypes here in connection to literature and media, because it makes perfect sense, that um, part of what, sorry, saying that, I'm trying to lose my, my train of thought that, um, so I said the live stream, I'm sorry, Wes. Um, <clears throat> no, no, I think you're going, uh, you're going down a Jungian thing. Is it the anima animus relationship or, or something else? No. Uh, um, oh, yes. Roles and playing roles and embodying roles. I think one thing you realize is that, well, the unions, they talk about the persona, the mask. That's your initial role, the role you try, the job you live, right? You're the funny guy or you're, you know, the go-getter. But that's obviously a very superficial role, right? There's just like one course of action wherever you go, there's much more to you. And when you enter into a relationship with this person, and this is where you're dead on the money, you project the anima or the animus on them. Like the person you're with is girlfriend or boyfriend or wife or husband. But again, obviously your projection of that role onto this person and their embodying of it is a very small segment of who that person really is as a living physical psych psychological being. And so what one runs into in relationship, and it, I think this is part of what a midlife crisis is, is that one slips in the representation or the embodiment of one's role. So like, Cloud here has been trying to be soldier or hero, and now he's utterly vulnerable, so physically and psychically weak that he's totally the opposite. He's fallen. This is the, his post-Diluvian state. He is no longer embodying that role. But what Tifa believes in is not the person that he used to be or the fact that it might be a lie that he is not, uh, that he is not the person he is trying to be. But what, what she is focusing on is that he has been attempting to be the person he has claimed he is and has the capacity to be that person in the future. And I think that's the more mature way of looking at a role. Not that you and hero are one and the same at all times, but that you can be hero insofar as you act in that way. And I, I think that's sort of the fall and the sort of regaining paradise aspect that's going to have to, have to happen here for Cloud. Yeah, yeah. And one of the other components of that, like what it means now to be a hero is not going to look like his ideal of Sephiroth that he was sort of 
chasing after for so long, it's going to look really different because you've got this uh, uh, meteor hanging in the sky, this this kind of impending doom, which is the other part of the midlife crisis, right? Like sense of impending mortality, or it may as well be impending because it's inescapable and it's coming sooner or later, right? You're going to die. You're going to die. And, and that's like meteor. It's like everyone, everyone on the planet uh, has that sense really hanging over their heads, like literally. And uh, what a hero is in this situation then is the one who can, who can clear that up, who can uh, face meteor, right? Um, help to avert the catastrophe and save the world, right? So that's, that's a real different kind of hero than the Sephirothian uh, image that, that we've been working off of. And, you know, it's sort of like puts Sephiroth in that category of the, uh, of the, the false idol, you know, um, which again, like that's part of the difficulty is maybe you've had certain beliefs that were not questioned for a long time. And then you have to find that they are inadequate, um, to a new situation. And, uh, I, I find the, the, the movement here um, from, you know, cloud as leader to cloud as um, sick invalid, uh, uh, kind of an interesting reflection of that as well, right? He has been the hero. He's been the leader of the party. And now he is uh, broken down and needs, uh, needs someone to take care of him. Um, but, you know, at least we found him and there's, there's hope in that respect. Uh, he's not as far gone as Sephiroth. Yeah, and I, I see that almost as part of a great meta commentary along with Meteor and hanging over our heads for the rest of the game, even during the most fun side quests. As if the game is sort of talking about the path of life as in the first half is to get into the game and to sort of immerse yourself in the world. But then the second half, and that's like childhood, and the second half like being adulthood is a release from the world that the game is literally telling you there's a clock on your time of play in it and that there's going to be something you're going to have to find to do afterwards, next. That, that Meteor is going to hit the world, and you're either going to save it or not, but the game's going to be over at that point. So it, it's almost as if it is, it is saying to you that, you know, all the world's a stage, like Shakespeare says, and during, during our time on it, we play many roles, but that is precisely what the game is saying. Cloud has been a hero and so strong, but he's also been sort of a, himself false and pursuing a false idol, and perhaps that's part of his falseness to himself and his lying to himself and those around him. But um, now he plays, like you said, the invalid role. And that's also true of all of us as humans. Like we'll play the child role and then we'll have various adult roles. And then, you know, if we're lucky enough to get old, we will play those old roles. You don't get to play a role forever. I think it's part of what this game is telling us as a role-playing game, literally as a role-playing game. You, you play your roles as well as you can while you play them. And then you have to move on. Like you're saying, those beliefs that are being brought into the new situation are dragging him down into his own personal hell, right? And I think what you're saying is acute and, and astute for learning how to go from one situation in life to another or how to deal with like, say, a tragedy or a trauma, right? Like going from being a walking human who is a cop and walks every day to being you know, a wheelchair human after something terrible who no longer is ever going to be a cop 
And like, how does a person deal with that sort of thing? And so now Cloud, who thought he was a hero and now is like a discarded, a discarded failed clone of a hero who's potentially not even a hero, who is so beyond him at this point that he's like a god, whereas Cloud's not even like a person. He's like a puppet. It's how do you come back from that? How do you, like a spider, reconstruct the web, which is your map of reality? It's, it's interesting you mentioned uh, about his, his passage through the life stream. Um, and uh, that's, you know, the, uh, the theory behind that um, and how it's connected with materia, which is like crystallized uh, from it. That, um, that's part of his, his illness here that he's, yeah, has, has, has been like flooded with that sort of information um, carried uh, deep, deep under the the ground, under the sea, right? And yet he's sort of washed back up and and has survived, right? And that's sort of like impressive, in and of itself. That it makes me wonder then about the the game sort of having you go around and collect huge materia, kind of out of nowhere at this point. That's like the new thing to do because you listen in on a another conversation in the boardroom back at. Shinra headquarters, uh, where they're deciding, okay, here's our new plan. We're going to gather some huge materia, load it on a rocket, and blow up the meteor, and that's going to work, and that's what we'll do. All right, break. <laughs> so, so like, all of a sudden, and it sort of, I mean, uh, it sort of curtailed each of these little scenes of, um, like, figuring out what to do next. It feels a little bit contrived uh, and a little bit, you know, short um as far as adventures in this game go like you know remembering back to midgard took us how many hours to get through that part whereas here each of these huge materia quests is like 10 minutes maybe like it actually sets that timer on the first one you have you have only 10 minutes to do the quest so um so that's kind of funny i guess like how how rich with information cloud potentially is at this point and then how sort of shallow uh, the Shinra plan is, and yet it connects with huge materia, right? They're going to take this crystallized thing, which is rife with energy and life uh, and, and knowledge, right? Ancient wisdom. And they're just going to shoot it in a rocket at their problems and, and hope that that works, you know? <laughs> so, uh, it does, it does seem like a complete, like superficial, like parody or farce of an actual sophisticated solution. Because on the one hand, you do have something that if you were to understand it is obviously one of the most valuable things in existence and that it is calcified, hardened live stream. And we hear about the huge material that is 330 times stronger than the material that we have, which, wow, you know, that's who knows how much damage that could do. And they're just gonna, like you said, attach it to a rocket and hope it explodes in the right way in front of Meteor, um, and we'll, we'll just have to see how that works. But to, to what extent do you, do you see that as sort of a, a continued extended metaphor of the sort of unsophistication of the Shinra methodology? They send in, even like, they send in the troops to get the huge materia. They're willing to destroy Corel to get the huge materia. They're just, they use the Turks to kidnap. Uh, you know, they suppress by force. They're just, they're sort of sloppy and they seem to use their strength and wealth 
in a way that makes me think that they're not going to maintain it. Almost as if Rufus just doesn't quite get it like his father must have in order to accrue that power. Because these solutions are, they're just, they're not good solutions. And they're not working either, right? Because they're not even getting the material at this point. You, even without Cloud, are, are, are um, foibling, or not foibling, but uh, uh, whatever that F word is for keeping somebody from what they want. You are thwarting them, I guess it's a T word. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, foiling works, I think. I mean, and throughout yeah, the game, foil. Rufus has been a foil to Cloud, right? And so he, in this case, has a lot of resources at his disposal. And I think that's probably part of the, the hubris, right, of, of the sloppiness that you see going on. I, I think there's also something interesting about Shinra where they seem to have forgotten that your party is there, you know, like as a, as a countervailing force. They seem to think that since Cloud is gone, like the whole party must have dissolved and, well, I guess we'll just have to solve this meteor thing on our own, right? There's no consideration of maybe trying to partner with those remaining members of the party at least and, and do something uh, a little more coherent, you know? Better and, to kill them. Yeah, right. They, they, you know, one way or the other, they're out of the picture, so forget them right so and i i guess it's also kind of interesting that in that um boardroom scene uh i don't think hojo is present right he's he's uh somewhere else and right you know that also strikes me as strange that they're so um even in, within themselves so disunified so sort of all over the place and uh which is like again the a weird like distorted version of how your party is where there's members who are not present um but it seems like instead of caring about those people and trying to figure out and learn from them you know this incredible information they might have they're just like sort of making arbitrary decisions in their absence and going ahead with their with their plans the the corel part i mean which is really fun in a way is again like it feels super rushed you know it's like you just kind of it literally are, is a rush <laughs> yeah. and so you're you're sort of like forced to behave like shinra in that respect it's it's a train scene which again might make you think of that very first you know part of the game where you're you're on the trains a bit and uh and trying to be undercover in this case you're trying to catch up with the train and so you have to like do some silly movements again kind of like with tifa when she was imprisoned uh, you gotta like move buttons and levers up, levers up and down, uh, to to catch up with the train, and then and then it's really frustrating because yeah, you have to stop the train, and you don't really know if what you're doing is working at all. <laughs> you're just like pushing buttons, and a bunch of text is popping up on screen, and you're just trying to like scroll through it as quickly as possible. Um, it's it's yeah, very strange, like. I don't know about you, but it, it's like, I felt like I was spiraling out of control, going faster and faster. And all I could imagine was having the same mistake happen to me this time through the game that happened to me the first time where I had a, in this poor town that hated me, uh, I now had a, a train that had crashed left in that town for the rest of the game. And thank goodness it didn't happen. But I, I didn't get any feedback indicating that I was doing anything right. And so I was basically just mashing buttons at some point because it was tough because you could press uh, two buttons to make the lever go up and two to go down and you had to do it simultaneously. So I didn't know if you were supposed to press 
uh, all four buttons at the same time or just two up ones at the same time or an up and a down one. And so I was just doing everything while Barrett is yelling at me. Uh, you're not, you know, and while I physically perceive the train to go faster and it's, it's a harrowing experience too. It, it is sort of like how life happens without the logos there. If we take Cloud as the embodiment of the hero who is now without a mind as the embodiment of the logo, sort of like the Harry Potter figure in the Harry Potter series, so is Cloud here. And so without sort of that perspective and that sort of intelligent and structured way of looking at the world, it is sort of just like uh, crazy things are happening around you very fast and you don't know why, and you're just sort of mashing buttons. Right, it's, it's pretty rad. Um, on the other hand, you get this kind of thrill of just going through battles as quickly as possible and you you know your team is clearly wrecking these these wimpy shinra uh <laughs> flunkies you know and, and it's like you've got this timer that you're racing against that's the real challenge right and so it's like you have this kind of um uh arbitrary thing that you're struggling against that that is like meteor um it's hanging over you you know it's it's not it's not really shinra it's not really any person so much as the sense of your own impending doom, like should you not be able to complete this thing in a short enough time. Uh, paradoxically, that does like draw you into the game even more though. In this case, right, like you shut out everything that might be a distraction to try to like accomplish this task within the time limit. Um, it's a really, it's a very strange, uh, it's, it's, it's a strange feeling. I don't know if you ever played uh, Majora's Mask the uh, I it, it's it's got a similar kind of thing where everything is on a clock and um and it's like a groundhog day kind of thing and that's one of the most immersive games that i i think i've ever played it's, as far as games go i think it's all it's a nearly perfect one because it's it's so so interesting thematically right. but also just in the gameplay itself it, it blows final fantasy 7 out of the water but but you know final oh, fantasy wow. 7 has this rich this richness of of story um, well, maybe, which, maybe, yeah, maybe it has something to do with the adrenal glands being kicked in there because you're on the clock so much, you have to focus in so much deeper and that really does, and, and that really um, makes you connect to the game in a deeper, more meaningful way. And maybe that's how life is supposed to be and why you're supposed to structure it so that you understand that time is actually super valuable, which is explicitly what Dante says in the Purgatorio, that those who are wise understand the value of time and waste it least. Um, <clears throat> but it also harkens back to the very beginning of the game because again, we find ourselves uh, on a train, or head heading towards a train, or yes, on a train, and then we find ourselves fighting Shinra soldiers with a 10 minute clock at our back, just like our very first mission with Cloud fighting against Shinra soldiers, not shoulders, excuse me, um, Peter Piper picked a pickled pepper. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and we had a 10 minute clock set to get out of the Mako reactor. And so now we're doing that again without him. So it's almost like we're repeating the past too in a certain way. There's a recurrence going on. We're in another mid place. We're seeing these trains. We return to Corel again. We're fighting against Shinra soldiers and kicking their butts again. We have this 10 minute clock thrown back on um, that we, we get by. And so I just wanted to observe that as well. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's this part of the game where it, it's sort of like recombining elements from earlier in the story um, 
that that's also Cloud's question. I think when you, you go back and visit him at a certain point, or if you go back in and talk to him again, uh, he'll say, uh, like, what number am I? Or, or someone says that's what he's been asking, right? And that's that's sort of the interesting uh, meta thing about Final Fantasy games, right? They they all sort of com- recombine these, these same sorts of elements, um, maybe with some new bells and whistles, um, but just kind of like reiterate and reiterate. And and this game is, it's cool in the sense that it sort of is reflective about that, um, self-reflective, and, and, and implies that the player needs to sort of think about, you know, just what it is that they're doing by playing these games, um, spending their time, uh, which is so valuable. I think that it stands up, though, right? There is, there is an interesting uh, thematic underpinning to the story. Um, there's really interesting character uh, sort of development and relationships within it and more than that right the kinds of things that happen when you play the game with other people or at least sort of talk with other people about the game things that come out which um you might not have gotten from reading books or something like that as a kid but that you know playing games was was fun enough to to get you to sit still long enough to see and start to you know wonder about um i agree it's like yeah no, no, it's it's I guess a a, a very um, a very strange sort of sort of midpoint, uh, a sort of crossing crossroads or something like that. Yeah, and just more on the midpoint bit, we we actually will get to a place called Fort Condor, which has a phoenix-like condor, which I believe you get phoenix down from or a phoenix materia from that will and. Even after this, yeah, what was it, Wes? I saw. Uh, yeah, it's the Phoenix Summon spell, which is yes. really cool. Yes, the Phoenix Summon spell. And so I, I think the animation is, because I haven't yet finished playing that that part again, is that after you repel the Shidra, the sort of mom flies away and the egg will hatch. So again, sort of an image of renewal and and rebirth of this half point it's almost like just to get sort of meta commentary and i think our friend daniel babcock would appreciate this um that cloud asking what his number is and forgetting who he is is almost as if what he has been realizing and what sephiroth has been telling him is that he is a puppet which is literally true he is a puppet of us as well as of the fate and the the narrative that was written by you know a storyteller uh, for Final Fantasy VII, and it's almost as if what he has realized is that he is a character within a game that is being controlled by, you know, players and by the forces of fate, which is actually a theme that gets picked up in Final Fantasy VIII pretty deeply. Like, there are some characters you play as at some point that seem to feel your presence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that this is, a, I guess, a point in game development history where the medium had sort of reached um, a certain saturation and the people playing the games and the people making them uh, were at a certain level of sophistication maybe that they they started to sort of ask those questions and and make that part of the game uh i it since you bring up final fantasy 8 i don't honestly even know what number they're on now and what kinds of things might have happened in the meantime um I don't think I ever played beyond 10, maybe. That was the last one I ever played. So uh, this is something, you know, we can kind of speculate about. But, like, 
what is the next step after after making that sort of self-referential move? Um, what is what? How do you kind of go from there uh, and make another game? Like I don't even remember Final Fantasy VIII that well, um, but it sounds like you know having that sort of become a little more explicit is is part of it. Having that um, dynamic of the the people in the game having a sense that they're in a game. Uh, that's that's kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, there does seem to just, and this is something I'm interested in talking about with um, maybe a couple more scholars. I would like to talk to somebody who's maybe played eight through 15 or so. I think we're there at 15, maybe 16 at this point, just to wow. clue us in to what's, to what's happening there. But also, um, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the, the exact thing that you just touched on there, but somebody to clear up that theme just a little bit. Um, I'm forgetting which one it is I'm actually referring to, but. Well, I guess, speaking of scholars, we, we talked to Helen McCarthy the other morning, which was really excellent. I was really pleased with, uh, with getting to do that. And we've yes. got another one, another person, uh, a Dungeons and Dragons uh, player um, who we're gonna talk to this afternoon, hopefully. Um, yes. So, you know, we're making, <laughs> making those, those efforts to, and learn from that's people. what it was. Thank oh, you, Wes. Cool. You helped me. Yeah. So somebody who could maybe speak to how what we look for in games is not only the competitive sort of moving towards a goal, but the social element. And what comes out in Final Fantasy VII is just how important that social element is. That that pursuing a goal with people produces ultimate friendship, which is a claim that I, I came to much earlier and made, and I would continue to make. And I think is something that now we're sort of sort of trying to pursue across media as people, like what is the best way to gather the sort of Heideggerian question or even, you know, even earlier Christian question where th two or three are gathered in my name, like is it through Dungeons and Dragons or, you know, sort of LARPing or playing baseball or doing podcasts, like what are the things we gather to do and for what reason? And it seems like if we can tilt that trajectory up, if we can get as many people putting as much of their, their efforts into something that makes the world better by our own standards that that produces you know with a sense of time and how one's efforts make an impact that that is sort of like that is the the alchemical gold from lead that we are looking to make that uh, producing that sort of ultimate community endeavor and that seems to be the question that's being put by these games how do you do that exactly and that does seem to be uh the real question in this world Nice, yeah. Well, so for next time, Fort Condor, finish that up. Maybe revisit Cloud down in Medieval and uh, possibly go on to, I think the next one is the, uh, the underwater reactors, if I'm remembering. Oh, right. wow. And I'll have to avoid that terrifying new super shark emerald weapon in the <laughs> water. Better not hit him and suffer the terror of Air Tam Storm. <laughs> raining down fire from heaven uh, from underneath the deep blue sea. So I guess I'll try and avoid that Poseidon when we get there. Well, cool. Well, I'll talk to you again in a little bit here. Uh, yeah, and those uh, of you who listen in, yeah, we've been getting a lot of listens lately, and it was really a pleasure having Helen um, McCarthy on. She was great. I hope we have her on again very, very soon. Um, and uh, we have another one of these today.
So we're going to be talking about Dungeons and Dragons and definitely making some connections between that and Final Fantasy VII. And I have the hypothesis that there is a, that there is a, a difference, maybe in degree, maybe in kind, between Dungeons and Dragons and Final Fantasy VII, though they are role-playing games. So tune in for that if you're interested. Cool. Sounds good. Till next time. Thanks.